Acts chapter 24. Go ahead and turn there. That's our text today. The whole chapter we're going to try to cover today. Bite off another big chunk as we come to the end of our series through the book of Acts. Let's pray first. Heavenly Father, we come to you now and Lord, we ask that you would tune our hearts solely to you, that we would put blinders on to any distractions that might be happening here in the room or maybe even in our hearts and in our minds, any fears that might be creeping up that might distract us from you. We ask, Lord, that you would center our hearts upon your word and upon the finished work of Jesus Christ like a laser beam now, and that your word would have its way in our hearts to change us however you see fit. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. There are all kinds of crazy fears out there. Um, maybe y'all have heard of some, some strange fears. Have y'all ever heard of any Strange. Let's say like, um, like what, what's arachnophobia? That's what? Fear of spiders. Any other phobias you guys are aware of? Fear of clowns. What's that called? Clownophobia? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, bozophobia? I don't know. Any, any, any other phobias? Anybody know any of any? Claustrophobia? That, that's yours? Okay. What? Hydrophobia, which is like a fear of water, right? All right. Um, let, me, let me share with you a few. There's, um, I, I went and looked for some fears last night. Here's some you may have never heard of before. And these are real fears that have been, quote-unquote, diagnosed in um, the psychological world today. There's electorophobia. That's the fear of chickens. So not sure if anybody's struggling with that here today. There is, um, I'm going to try to pronounce these right, arachibuterophobia, arachibuterophobia, arachibuterophobia. That is the fear, oh, that crippling fear of having peanut butter stuck to the roof of your mouth. That's what that is. There's allophobia, which is the fear of flutes, okay, just in case you're scared of someone playing the flute. Um, there's one called... Um, chromophobia or chromatophobia. Now, I bet you can figure that one out. The fear of colors. The fear of colors. These are real fears. This just shows how messed up the human condition really is. All right, then there's consecotalophobia. That's the fear of chopsticks. So people with that need not travel to China or go into a Chinese restaurant for that matter. There's erythrophobia. I think I have this one. That's the fear of red lights. And so you speed up when you get to the intersection. No, this literally, there is a fear of red lights. Who fears these things? Um, oh, I like this one. There's galeophobia, which is the fear of French-speaking people, France, or the French culture. I kind of get that one. Uh, no, no offense, Francis. All right? Mr. Mercier. Um, and then there's this one. Homophobia. That is the fear of sermons. All right? So hopefully none of you guys are struggling with homophobia here this morning. Now there's 
one fear that plagues all mankind to one degree or another. It's the fear of men. Fear of man. Um, We fear man's opinions. We fear man's thoughts. We fear men, what they might do to us if we don't get along with them or if we might argue with them or we don't fall in line with their opinions. And it it manifests itself in a lot of different ways. Um, It may manifest itself in uh, just uh, uh, giving in to what other people think and and avoiding arguments all the time. it, it may give in to a sort of duplicitous type of speech where you say one thing to one person and another thing to another person. It's the fear of men, and it affects everybody to some degree or another. I don't have any sort of fancy psychological term for it. But this term, it's sin. When we fear men instead of fearing God. Let me tell you a story of, about a, of, of a guy by the name of Hugh Latimer. How many of you in here are familiar with Hugh Latimer? He was one of the English reformers. Hugh Latimer was an English preacher and reformer in uh, the 1500s, and he was no people pleaser. He was a preacher to the royal court of Henry VIII. Yes, that's Henry VIII, who was famous for his many, many wives. He had six of his wives beheaded. Okay? It was to this man who had used his power, this Henry VIII, who had used his power to satisfy his sexual lust, that Latimer, on New Year's Day, when it was the custom to bring the king a gift, brought King Henry VIII a New Testament with a page, uh, uh, with it dog-eared on this text, Hebrews 13:4. Let marriage be held in high honor among you, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. That was his gift to Henry VIII. Um, he was no fearer of people. Later, he preached a sermon on self-control that greatly angered the king, and he was subsequently commanded, brought into the king's presence, and commanded to preach again on the next Sunday and to make an apology for what he had preached that Sunday. History tells us that while preparing his text that week, Hugh Latimer spoke these words to himself. Hugh Latimer... Dost thou know where and before whom thou art to speak this day? To the high and mighty monarch, the king's most excellent majesty, who can take away thy life if thou offendest. Therefore take heed that thou speakest not a word that may displease. But then consider well, Hugh, dost dost thou not know from whence thou comest? Upon whose message thou art sent, even by the great and mighty God, who is all present, and who beholdeth all thy ways, and who is able to cast thy soul into hell, therefore take care that thou deliverest thy message faithfully. And he got up in the pulpit and he preached the exact same sermon, just with more energy, that second Sunday. The sermon ended... The court was filled with expectation as to what would happen to Hugh and probably what would happen to his head, to be more specific. After dinner, the, call, the king called Latimer into his council, into his chamber, and with a very stern countenance asked him how he dared preach such a sermon. And Hugh Latimer, falling on his knees, replied that his duty to his God came first 
and that he had merely discharged his duty and cleared his conscience by what he had spoken. Upon which the king, rising from his seat and taking the good man by the hand, embraced him and said, Blessed be God that I have such an honest servant. That's courage. That's boldness. That's a man who does not fear men, but instead fears God. As we travel, continue to travel through the book of Acts and we get to Acts 24, we see the same thing with Paul. Paul is now in the second of a series of trials that he's going to go through based upon these trumped-up charges that the Asian Jews had stirred up when he went to Jerusalem. And Paul is continuing this journey towards Rome as Jesus had promised in Acts 23.11 when Jesus said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, you, so you must testify also in Rome. So you remember the story. Paul is, he went to Jerusalem. The riot was stirred up by these Asian Jews who accused him of defiling the temple and teaching people against the, the law of Moses. And they were going to kill him on the spot. They dragged him out. They were beating him up with the intention of getting rid of this pest. And the Romans intervened. The, the, the Roman uh, tribune sent soldiers down to rescue Paul. They wanted to find out what was going on. And then Paul spoke to the people there in the, in the um, temple sharing his testimony of what Christ had done in his life and, and how Christ had sent him to be a preacher to the Gentiles because he had been rejected by the Jews. And at that point, they lost it. And they demanded that he be killed. And this poor tribune, Claudius Lysias, had to bring Paul in and try to find out what's going on with this guy. Stretched him out to be tortured, to only to find out that he was actually a Roman citizen and he couldn't torture a Roman citizen so he then called a meeting of the Sanhedrin to try to get to the bottom of this. And, and Paul met before the Sanhedrin, continued to, to proclaim the truth, proclaim that he wasn't guilty of any of the things they were charging him of. Instead, ultimately, at the bottom, at the heart of everything, it was because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the hope of Israel that he was here and being charged with these things. And, well, that caused a semi well, not a semi, a full-blown theological argument between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Remember, the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection or any supernatural activity. And then there's the Pharisees who believed in it all. And this argument broke out, and they were going to tear Paul to pieces. And so again, he had to be saved by the tribune. And then some very zealous Jews came to the, um, uh, to the Sanhedrin and said, Tell you what. Ask Lysias to send Paul back so you can talk to him some more. And while he's on the way, we're going to ambush him and kill him. We're just going to get rid of this guy. And so they thought it was a great plan. They were planning on doing it, except that Paul's nephew, and we don't know his name, we just know it was a nephew of Paul, overheard this somehow and went and warned Paul. Paul sent him to Lysias, the tribune. Lysias takes him aside, finds out the information, and says, you know what, we've got to get Paul out of here. And takes 470 armed guards and a mount for Paul and sends him off to Caesarea. And that's where we are today in Acts chapter 24. He's in Caesarea and now he's going to meet Felix, the governor of Caesarea, of, of Judea, of that whole region. Felix has been sent a letter by Claudius Lysias explaining what had gone on. And we pick it up in Acts chapter 24. It says, And after five days the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. Apparently, apparently the Jews had hired a lawyer, a guy by the name of Tertullus. 
So, this Tertullus is there with the Jews, and it says, it continues in Acts chapter 24, verse 1, they laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had summoned, when he had, when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him. And now we get into Tertullus's delivery here. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time focusing on this first part of chapter 24. The main piece of the chapter I want us to focus on is chapter 24 and 27. But we've got to get the story here. We've got to see what's going on. So I'm going to walk through this just verse by verse and, and talk a little bit through what was happening here. Now before we get into these actual accusations, I want you to listen. Now Tertullus, he's a hired gun. Remember, he is a lawyer that's been hired to represent the Jews. And therefore it shouldn't be surprising to us that he very much has this, this murky, sort of a, um, a flimsy, oh, lawyer sort of speak. Politician-esque, if you will. This is a classic example of duplicitous flattery by this hired gun, Tertullus. He says this. Since, he's speaking to Felix, since through you we enjoy much peace. Now pause right there. There's the first lie that Tertullus tells. Because it was not true. Because Felix was actually a very, very inept governor of the Judea and Samaritan areas. He actually was very harsh and cruel and there was no peace during his time, during his governorship. He actually was very harsh on the people and was, would, would quench revolts with tremendous violence. Tertullus continues, though. And since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. Now there's lie number two. There's no evidence at all that Felix did any reforms that benefited the, the, Israel, the Jewish people at all. Matter of fact, even Roman historians like Tacitus say that Felix was a tremendously inept governor. He did nothing to benefit the people in Judea. He goes on. Okay. In every way, in verse 3, in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. There's lie number 3. The Jews were not grateful to Felix. They hated Felix. He was a very harsh governor. And anti-Roman sentiment was at its peak during this time, right now, during Felix's reign. It would eventually boil over to a revolt in A.D. 66. Now one of the signs of being a man-fearer is in our language. The words we choose to use. When our language is designed to flatter men and thus twist the truth whichever way the winds of men blow, it is speech built upon the foundation of fear of men. And that's how Tertullus's speech is built right here. Now he goes on to bring three very specific charges against Paul. Verse 4. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague. So there's the first, here's the first charge. One who stirs up riots among the Jews throughout the world. And, here's the second charge, is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Now here's the third charge, verse 6. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. Well, not exactly. They actually tried to kill him. But again, remember, Tertullus is just saying whatever he thinks Felix wants to hear. And then he says in verse 8, By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him everything of which we accuse him. And then it says the Jews in verse 9 also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. Now they knew what Tertullus had said was lies, but when people hate the gospel, 
They hate the truth. Satan hates the truth, and Satan is the father of lies. Therefore, people of the way, people of the truth, people of the life, the way, the truth, and the life, people who follow Jesus, Christians, will always face false accusations. It happens today. You face false accusations when you're a believer in Jesus Christ. And it may happen in a variety of different places. It can happen on Facebook. It can happen to your face. But there you have it. With this flowery speech and this empty flattery and this dishonest rhetoric, the Jews, through Tertullus, had raised three accusations against Paul. Number one, that he stirs up riots among the Jews. He's a ringleader of an illegal sect and that he had profaned the Jewish temple. Now Paul will address each one of these three charges in his defense. And he will open his defense not with empty compliments and and sweet talk, but, but with truth that's spoken respectfully and directly. The opposite of flattery built on man-fearing isn't rudeness. So it's not like Paul's just going to jump up here and say, they're just all telling the truth. And by the way, Felix, you stink as a governor. All right? I'm not saying that the opposite of man-flattery is rudeness. Paul knew how to be gracious with his speech. He knew that he was called to be gracious in his speech all the time. So he shows wisdom in his choice of words and purity in his motives. Perhaps Paul was thinking and believing in these words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 10 verse 16 says, Behold, this is Jesus speaking, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men. For they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Perhaps that teaching of Jesus was in Paul's mind as he stands up to speak to Felix. So Felix nods for Paul to speak, and Paul does in verse 10. Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. It's respectful. It's direct. He's not being dishonest. This man has been a ruler over the nation for many years, and Paul is very happy to make his defense. Now he'll address the first charge in verse 11. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. Paul admits to have been being at the scene of the crime, if you will. He was at the temple. But he says, you know, I wasn't doing anything. I was just there worshiping the Lord. Matter of fact, they have no evidence whatsoever, no witnesses, nothing to say that I was stirring up riots. Now when it comes to the second charge in verse 14... Paul makes an admission. He says, but this I confess to you. So he says, I confess. I'm sure all the ears in the room perked up. Whoa, here's a confession. That according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and and man, he's not ashamed of being part of this quote-unquote sect of the Nazarenes. That was one of the phrases used to describe Christians. Because Jesus was Jesus of Nazareth. 
But he goes on and he acknowledges that his participation in this thing that they call a sect is actually not participation in a sect at all, but actually he is participating in the fulfillment of Judaism. He's actually worshiping the way a true Jew should worship. Now we know that Roman governors had to have at least some sort of cursory understanding of the religion over the, the, that the people were involved in over which they governed. And we're told here that Felix had a pretty accurate understanding of the way. And Paul prefers to use that title here. He says, the way. And he demonstrates that those who follow the way, which undoubtedly refers to Jesus' words in John 14, 6. Those who follow the way are the true worshipers of the God of our fathers. And it is those of the way who believe everything laid down in the law and written in the prophets. Because everything in them points to Jesus of Nazareth. Who, who himself declared to be the way. And thus those who followed him have a hope in God. And for life beyond this life, resurrection from the dead. And at that point, then Paul, as he did before, in the, before the Jewish council in Jerusalem, turns to the discussion from himself to the resurrection. And the theology of the resurrection. Knowing that ultimately it was this reason that he was on trial. Then... So then Paul addresses this final charge in verse 17. Now after several years I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. So he's saying, you know what, they're saying I defiled the temple. I actually did the opposite of that. I brought these alms to my people, to my nation. Now, interesting note here. Who did he bring the alms to? Who is he bringing the offering for? The what? The church. What is he saying here when he says, I brought the alms to my nation? He's saying that the true Israel of God is the church. Those who were truly Abraham's descendants were those who had put their faith in the promised one, in Jesus Christ. And he says here, you know what? They can't prove this either. I was in the temple. But some Jews from Asia, verse 19, he says, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me. There weren't any witnesses here, but there were these Jews in Asia who had made all these accusations. Now this is a brilliant legal move by Paul. He makes a brilliant legal move here because now he's bringing charges against these Asian Jews by saying that they're not here. By saying that, he is calling to mind a Roman law which said that if you make an accusation against someone, you had to be present at the trial to make that accusation. He's saying those Jews from Asia who stirred everything up in the first place, they're the real rioters, first of all, and it's illegal to riot in Rome. Secondly, they're the ones who brought the charges. They're not here. You can almost hear him asking now, Judge, I now ask that this case be dismissed. That's basically what he's saying. So Paul says in verse 20, Let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they find when I stood before the council, other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you this day. This was a brilliant defense. It was honest, yet calculated, respectful, yet direct and true. Now Felix surely doesn't see any reason to continue this sham of a proceeding. But Felix is a man-fearer. Not a God-fearer. Felix is a cunning, shrewd politician who, like most, I won't say all, like most politicians, is a man-pleaser. Therefore, 
justice is of secondary concern to him. He wants to please the Jews and keep them happy, but also he can't just condemn a Roman citizen without any true evidence. So in verse 22 it says, But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. Now, this is obvious that he didn't believe the charges that were brought against Paul. You don't let a rioter, someone who's stirring up riots, have that kind of freedom. and Let his friends come to him. He knew Paul was innocent. But, listen, but Felix, whose name is, means happy, by the way, we can call him Mr. Happy, Mr. Happy-go-lucky, whatever you want to call him. Mr. Happy here, and you can just see that politician smile, can't you? He wants to make the Jews happy, and he wants to make Paul happy. He's going to give him a little bit of freedom. He makes the Roman government happy. He's not going to give this Roman citizen over to the Jews, and he's just going to put it off. Matter of fact, he puts it off for two years, is what we'll learn from this text. What a man-fearer Felix was. Now we get to the part of the text I really want us to focus on. Once the trial was over, the docket was closed, the bailiff turned off the lights, the jury had gone home, Paul got an opportunity for a private audience, a private meeting with Felix and Felix's wife, a young Jewish beauty by the name of Drusilla. It says this in verse 24. After some days, Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul. Now Felix's wife, Drusilla, and as I mentioned already, she was a beautiful young lady. History tells us, secular history tells us, that she was a ravishing young beauty. She comes into town and perhaps her curiosity is roused because she wants to hear more about this man, Paul, whom she's undoubtedly heard about. You see, Drusilla was the daughter of Herod Agrippa, who had killed the apostle James. Her grandfather was Herod Antipas, who had killed John the Baptist. Her great-grandfather was the Herod who had killed the young boys in Bethlehem in his attempt to kill Jesus. She was from a pretty bad line. She had some serious issues in her DNA, I would say. And so just like her great-grandfather, her who out of curiosity just kept John the Baptist hanging around and then wanted to hear about Jesus and see Jesus, when he heard that Jesus had been arrested, she too just sort of has this curiosity about this guy named Paul who teaches about this Nazarene named Jesus. Now here's where I really want us to think about the message that Paul brings. There's two things I want us to focus on. The message, okay, and Paul's motivation. Two M's. The message and the motivation. I didn't give you much notes today. Matter of fact, the only point in your notes is going to be at the very end of the sermon. Message and motivation. So here he gets a private audience with Drusilla and with Felix. What should Paul do? Should he not try to procure his release? After all, the charges were bogus. Felix knew the charges were bogus. Surely just a little buttering up to Felix and his wife Drusilla would have gotten him out of this house arrest and on with ministry. I mean, think about it. Paul could be thinking, my goodness, this is such a hindrance to my ministry to be stuck here with Felix. And now I get an opportunity to meet with him and his wife. And so I'm going to take advantage of this opportunity so that I can 
get out of this and get on with ministry. But the Apostle Paul didn't look at hindrances the same way we look at hindrances. I think the Apostle Paul looked at every hindrance as an opportunity for the gospel. Paul's commitment to the gospel and the truth drove him to preach nothing but Christ and Christ crucified. He wasn't going to take this opportunity to butter up Felix and try to get out of jail. He was going to take the opportunity to preach the gospel. So he's going to take this opportunity to, in this private meeting before Felix and his wife to proclaim the truth to them. But let's ask the question now, how does he need to do that? How does he need to proclaim the truth to Felix and Drusilla? Okay, how, shouldn't he be careful not to offend, right? Because these guys have his life in the, their hands. So shouldn't he be careful to, to not to offend them and win them over, perhaps with some soft words? On top of that, these guys are apparently seekers because they've asked to meet with him. So they're seekers and, and they have a lot of power. And How about I just give them a really nice, easy message about Jesus' love and leave it at that, and we'll all be happy, and Mr. Happy will be happy, and I'll be happy, and Drusilla will be happy, and we can all just, I can get on with ministry. Well, there's the last point, which you don't need until the end, but if you want to go ahead and fill in your notes, that's fine. Verse 24. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and sent for Paul, and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. The central aim of Paul's teaching was always faith in Jesus Christ. Many commentators believe that the Greek structure of this text here demands the, the direct article, which means it says they heard him speak of, about the faith in Christ Jesus, meaning the whole teaching of the gospel. I tend to lead towards this interpretation, but regardless, Christ is the center of his teaching. Paul took every opportunity to point to Jesus. Surely he's gracious and passionate, loving, as he shares this truth with them and their need to put their faith in the hope of, of Israel, in the Messiah, the one whom Drusilla's people had been waiting for. This Jesus the Nazarene, he was the way, he is the way, he is the truth, he is the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. But Paul was no preacher of cheap grace. This wasn't a make Jesus your best friend and everything will be okay. You'll govern better, Felix. Drusilla, you'll dress a little bit more modestly. This wasn't a make Jesus your best friend and you'll be a more moral person. You'll raise little Agrippa. Their son's name was Agrippa. You'll raise little Agrippa better. And your life will just be great. You just need to Jesusify your life. Paul knew what we should know. That no one seeks God. These seekers were not seeking God. God had sought out the opportunity to present the gospel to them. Paul knew what we should know. That no one sees their own need for salvation. No one sees their own need to put any hope in Christ. They must be shown from the word of God lovingly graciously yet directly and boldly that they are in dire straits and they are sick and they are destined for an eternity separated from God. That's what the world needs to hear. The physician must make them aware of their condition or else the remedy makes no sense. Why would Felix put his faith, his hope, in this man whom his predecessor had crucified? 
And why would the beautiful Drusilla need any deliverer? So Paul goes on in verse 25. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. We'll pause right there. They heard him speak about faith in Jesus Christ. And the way Paul demonstrates their need for faith in Jesus Christ is to give them a nice little three-point sermon, which is more evidence to me that Paul was a Baptist because he's got a three-point sermon. He just didn't alliterate it. But other than that, he's got it down. Three points here. Righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. Hmm. Probably not the best sermon to give if you're trying to get out of jail. Paul isn't Tertullus. He isn't going to say what he thinks men want to hear. He isn't going to say what he thinks men desire to hear. He's going to speak the truth of the gospel. What enabled Paul and countless other men and women throughout church history to put their necks on the line and say not what those people wanted to hear, but what God wanted them to say was that they feared God more than they feared men. 2 Corinthians 5.11 Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. I think we get that in the wrong order. I know I do. I try to persuade others without a proper fear of God. And if you try to persuade others without a proper fear of God, you will find yourself in a situation where you began to fear men. Should I say that? Should I mention to them that the Bible says homosexuality is wrong? Should I say this or not? You cannot persuade men if you don't first fear God. That's the gasoline in the engine. Is the fear of the Lord. And here's our point. The only point for today's message. Paul's motivation to speak the full message... So motivation and message, and it's not just a message, it's the full message of the gospel was fueled by, among other things, it's not the only fuel, but fueled by, among other things, a higher fear of a higher judge. A higher fear of a higher judge. I say among other things because Paul goes on in 2 Corinthians 5, he says in verse 14 of 2 Corinthians 5, for the love of Christ controls us. So Paul spoke with a deep love for the lost that didn't allow his fear of God to justify angry and careless preaching. Paul had a love that controlled his fear-driven message. And therefore he was able to find that balance, which is hard for many preachers to find, myself included. And that is to preach with boldness and truth, yet with love and deep deep love for the lost. It is said of um, George Whitfield, the great evangelist and preacher, that when he would preach to the crowds, he would oftentimes just weep. Just weep over the crowds as he spoke. And the evidence that that was not some sort of contrived weeping was the fruit of his ministry. Now today I'm focused more on Paul's fear of God, though. Paul served a higher judge, therefore he did not let a lesser one, this Felix, Mr. Happy, whom he was standing in front of, dictate what he said. I read from Matthew 10 earlier for a reason. 
it goes on like this, and this verse is in the context of when you're brought before the magistrates, when you're brought to the synagogues. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Don't fear the man. All, all Felix can do to you, Paul, is chop your head off. Big deal. To live is Christ and to die is. All that person can do is tell you you are a bigot and a homophobe. And it may get to the point, as it is in many nations around the world, where they put a gun to your head. That's all they can do. Pull the trigger. I fear the one who could throw my soul into hell if he's not my right, rightful king. If he's not the king over my heart. Fear God, not men. Paul's motivation to speak the truth in every opportunity was driven by a service to a higher king. <clears throat> I think if we, I, I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon that, um, that I think we all struggle with this. If you don't struggle with it in here, please come counsel me at the end of this service. Because I know me. I know me, and I know the mistakes I have made in my home and in this church because I have feared men, good men, not men like Felix, not happy, smiley, fake politicians, but good men. And I confess before this church and before God that I have said one thing to one person and another thing to another person because I fear men. And I don't know what God's future is for me in this pulpit, but the day he moves me out of this pulpit, you find a man who doesn't fear men. He'll be a better pastor than me. A much better pastor. And I have failed my family, and I have failed you, because I fear men. And I have made decisions based upon the fear of men. Felix, <clears throat> whose name, by the way, as I've already mentioned, means Mr. Happy. Let me tell you a little bit about Felix. I already mentioned he wasn't a good dude. He was very violent. He was the first slave to ever ascend to Roman governorship. He had done so through cunning and deceit. But what politician didn't? Drusilla was from Herod's household, as I already mentioned. And secular history tells us that she was this beautiful woman who used her beauty to gain power. And it was to these two people that Paul preaches righteousness. To these power-hungry, do-anything-to-get-in-their-position people, he preaches right living. Righteousness. Secular history tells us that Felix had two wives before Drusilla. Upon seeing her, he decided to seduce her as a new trophy wife 
Drusilla, likewise, was married to a semi-powerful king in Syria, but Felix was more powerful. So she saw an opportunity. So she gave no resistance to his seductive advances. History tells us that they hired a magician named Simon from Cyprus to seduce her. He hired a, a, a magician to seduce her. Now, it's probably all a ruse so that when she left her husband, she could say, I was under a spell. And it's to these two people who, who, who have this lust, not only for power, but for, for, for whatever sexual pleasure they might want. It's to these two people that Paul looks and says, self-control. These two were a power couple of their day. Politically and socially, they were, on the, they were the powerful and glamorous crowd. They were in the powerful and glamorous crowd. They would have been on the cover of People magazine. The, the paparazzi would have been at their heels. It's to these two who sat in such positions of power that Paul looked at them and spoke about the coming judgment. Not exactly Dale Carnegie's prescription for winning friends and influencing people. And Paul, compelled by love, graciously, I'm convinced it was gracious and direct, preached these truths to them because he wanted them to see that though they lacked righteousness of any sort that could in any way please God, for none are righteous, no, not one, that... The, through faith in Christ, they could be justified and receive the perfect righteousness of Christ credited to them. And Paul, compelled by love, graciously and directly preached these truths to them because he wanted them to see that though they lacked self-control, even if they could practice some sort of uh, asceticism or severity to the, to the body, it would be of no value of stopping the, the indulgences of the flesh. And thus they needed the presence of the Spirit of God dwelling in them through faith in Jesus Christ, to produce fruit. Fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and what? Gentleness and self-control. And Paul, compelled by love, graciously and directly preached these truths to them because he wanted them to see that though they, like that they, like all of mankind, were facing a judgment to come from a higher judge, from a much more powerful judge, from a perfect judge, a judge who couldn't be swayed by empty flattery or bought with bribes. And that before this judge, they stood condemned unless they put their faith in Christ Jesus and thus be legally declared justified, not guilty on the basis of Christ's work alone. Not exactly a good seeker-sensitive message either. Felix the happy seeker wasn't either. He wasn't happy. He didn't have the joy that lasts. And he wasn't a seeker. He was curious. The true seeker is the one who has been sought by God. It says that after Felix heard this message, in verse 25, the second half of verse 25, says Felix was alarmed. The word actually means frightened or shaken. Okay, don't be surprised when proclamation based upon the fear of God produces fear in others. And he said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. If only Felix would have understood those emotions, that was grace. That was a gracious thing to fall into a feeling of trembling and fear like that. That was a gracious thing. 
because it was meant to drive him to the cross. He didn't repent. The Apostle Paul once told the Corinthians, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. But Mr. Happy didn't heed Paul's warnings. He continued to pursue his sin. In verse 26, it says, At that same time, he hoped that money would be given to him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So for two years, Felix, he hasn't relinquished, he hasn't repented of his sin in any sort of way. He continues to listen to the message. Our, our, I believe our churches are filled with people that come and listen to the message. But repentance has never, ever been a part of what they were planning on doing. They're just curious. Sounds good. Felix's story ends, he gets recalled to Judea in, in about two years, as we see from the text. He gets called from Judea back to Rome because he was such an inept governor. We don't know much more about his life, but there's no indication he ever came to Christ. And Drusilla, let me tell you how Drusilla, story, how her story ends. You see, at one point, Drusilla, with her son, little Agrippa, decided to go to the fanciest resort town available in the known world at that time. A little town by the name of Pompeii, known for its baths and luxurious living. It was where all the hip in people went, those people that are on the cover of People magazine. And while she was there, something happened that's in everybody's history books. Mount Vesuvius exploded and buried Drusilla and little Agrippa, and quite a few other people, under six feet of ash and mud. The city of Pompeii would never be seen again for another, well, 1,500 years. You see, in one moment, Drusilla was living the life, and in the next, the judgment. That's why we don't fear men. Because you can be living the life, and in the next moment, the judgment. Hugh Latimer, he was a bold dude. Let me tell you about his story and how his ends. He was burned at the stake along with Nicholas Ridley. They were reformers. They were bringing back the church to the scriptures. Oh, but old Queen Mary, known as Bloody Mary, didn't like this and therefore ordered that they be executed. And as they were lighting the flames, lighting the wood, and the flames were beginning to lick their feet, Hugh Latimer looked over to Mr. Ridley and said this, Be of good cheer, Master Ridley, and play the man, for we shall this day light such a candle in England as I trust by God's grace shall be never put out. Hugh Latimer loved the Lord Jesus, and he loved the lost but he didn't fear him. He feared his judge in heaven more than he feared any man. And he was willing to be literally set on fire for the gospel. We're not facing execution squads or a stake that we've got to walk out to and get tied to and burnt. I don't face any of those things. And I fear men. And so do you.
And we all need to repent. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes now. We'll close with a prayer and then let Anthony and Richie lead us in a song. Heavenly Father, we come to you now and we confess. I confess. I can't confess for the group. I confess that I have been a fearer of men all my life. And it has hampered my, it has hampered my ability to be a dad and to be a husband. And it has hampered my ability to lead the church. And I confess it and I turn from it, Lord. But I also acknowledge that I am such a sinner and so set in my stupid ways that I cannot even begin to defeat this sin apart from your work in my heart. Oh, Lord, teach me the fear of God. Lord, even as, as some in this group will be studying the, the study here after this on the one true God, let those attributes of God drive a deep fear in our heart. The fear of the one true God. A tremendous awe. An overwhelming weight. Forgive us, Lord, of our man-pleasing, of our waffling, of our flattering speech. And cause us now to walk in your way by the power of your Spirit. Give us love. Give us joy. Give us peace. Give us patience. Give us kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And you get all the glory because we can't produce a single one of those things without your Spirit. So we sing these songs to you now, and we do them in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen.